I want to welcome Christina on to the virtual summit today. Christina, how are you doing? I am doing great, Michelle. I'm so excited you're doing this. This is just, it's fantastic because, you know, we, we need to come together and have these conversations so we can network, we can figure out what's working with other people, who resources can be. Like I'm, I've got Gil in my back pocket now. I can't wait to reach out to him. So this is great. I love it. Love it. Yes. And, and people often ask me, I, I need to find somebody who does it. Like, yeah, I had somebody I interviewed her in my summit. And I was like, here, you can go check them out. And it was like, yo, can you do an introduction? <laughs> so I do a lot of intro, introductions throughout the week for people in this space and continue to do in podcasts and live LinkedIn lives and virtual summits. So people in industry and other consultants as well in the space know and have each other's resources. So I'm glad you can join us. So Christina, how did you get started in learning and development? Because that's where you started your, your career. Oh my gosh, that I'm so excited that you asked that question. I'm going to be excited about every question you ask. I'm just telling you. So um, actually, you know, I did my undergraduate work in speech pathology. I knew in my second year that that was not where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And I worked in the field for six years and then decided I really wanted to do something different. I decided at the age of 13 that I wanted to go into speech pathology and I just rolled through it. I thought it would be that easy to transition and it wasn't. It took me a really long time to figure out where do I really wanna be? And I ended up taking a job near my home because my kids were little at the time. I wanted to be close to my home. So if something happened and I needed to get to them quickly, I could. So I took a job as administrative assistant and anybody who knows me knows that is like the last thing I should be doing. I would come home in tears every day, sobbing about how much I hated my job. I was not good at it. I didn't like the people I work with. They didn't like me. And that is not normal for me. I usually love everybody and I connect well with people usually. So I started thinking I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this. I, I don't know where to go next. And I heard a voice, I hear voices all the time, but I heard a voice one time that said, your prayer is being answered. Your prayer is you're stuck. And so I put a pause on that and said, I need to rethink this. What can I put in the placeholder as a placeholder in my head until I get to where I need to go? And I came up with this, Michelle, and I'm telling people, write this down. It's a miracle worker. My thought was, I am moving in the direction of my greatest dreams. I am moving in the direction of my greatest dreams. And somehow when I made that statement, I'm moving in the direction of my greatest dreams, even though I didn't know what that was, it got me out of the cycle of thinking I'm stuck. And I felt great joy. I felt so excited in this joyful thing that. I am going to move into that, even though I don't know what that is. Long story short, I said, okay, what do you want to do? What do you think you're good at? And there are two things I think I'm really good at. I love doing research. I love to read. I'm an avid reader. And I love sharing information with people. And I thought, okay, who does that? I said, people in training and development. And so I said, that's what I want to be. I want to be a trainer. And then my next thought was, 
but you can't afford to go back to school right now. You need to work. You don't know anybody who does this, so you can't be mentored by them. And I said, nope, that's it. Do you know I transferred jobs a couple of months later? When I transferred to this particular company, they did not have a training department. I went in, I had done some human resources. Within two months, they decided they needed to open up a training department. I interviewed with somebody else, got the job, and then they paid for me to go all over the country to learn how to be a trainer. So what, what did I learn from that? Stay focused on your desired outcome. Don't worry so much initially about how you're going to get there. Just know where you want to go. It was huge. It was transformational to have that experience. I love it. I love it. Changing that, that, that voice in your head to be positive is so powerful. And I found mm -hmm. that I write, I started um, probably about 10 years ago, writing things in first person. You know how you go to a conference or you're at a virtual summit and they're taking mm -hmm. notes um, and you should do, and you're right, you should. And I started changing you to I. Or the lead person, I changed, I, as the lead person, I will do what? It literally changed how I moved and how I showed up. And so that mm -hmm. self-language, whether it's written or we're saying it out loud or in our head, really does make an impact. So yes, mindset, absolute mindset is what controls your outcomes and perspectives in on life. Absolutely, absolutely agree with that. So now you're in learning and development you you are a trainer you are a trainer yes. and so i, I want to dig into your topic more um about creating learning and development that is more inclusive that really helps retain talent right what does that let, let's take a, a journey down what do you look at first when you you hear from a hiring manager somebody we need to provide training to employees yeah, so there's a lot that goes into that. And one is, regardless of who the person or the group of people that are being trained, you really have to understand that people do have different styles of learning, of taking in information. We know that some people are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners. They learn through hearing. Some people are kinesthetic or they have to do it with their hands. Um, and then I look at cultural differences, like what I really want to know, what are people's past experiences with learning? If people went through school and they had a bad experience in school, coming into a learning environment might I think we lost Christina for just a moment. Sure, she'll her internet up pop back in. So let's give her a second. Um, if not, if if you have questions for Christina around learning and development, go ahead and let us know what those are. And that way, when she does pop back in, we will have that set up. But Christina's really focused on sharing with us how do you create learning and development programs to retain talent? Yeah, so maybe she has this, she has to do a system reboot. 
And what does that look like in your organization? So oftentimes, especially since the murder of George Floyd, a lot of organizations have been focused on recruitment. And we're seeing a lot of layoffs as well, but that's a different discussion. But what happens once you, you have diversified your workforce? How do you retain underrepresented employees in your organization? A lot of organizations haven't given thought. Their assumption is we will do it the same way for everybody. But what they probably have found in their recruitment efforts, their recruitment process change to reach different people, different demographics of, of, of candidates to employees. And so the assumption or the approach that in order to retain talent is not going to necessarily be the same. So, uh, so that's really what Christina is going to, is focusing on is how do you determine what works best? What does it look like to retain talent? Because they focus so much on diversifying their workforce, but how do you retain that underrepresented talent? So, Christina, you were in the midst of sharing something really phenomenal. So I'm gonna turn it back over to you. Yeah. So it so it really is. We, we can't treat everyone the same. We know, and I'm I'm sure a lot of people have seen the diversity graphic where there are these three or four people walking along a fence and on the other side of the fence is a baseball game. And these people wanna see the baseball game, but they're of varying height. And we talk about equality is, and th that, was the, that was the word we use for the longest time. Everybody gets the same box. Everybody's treated the same. Well, what retains employees is when we recognize what their needs are. And so you have to give different size boxes to people because you, you, first of all, we have to identify what are we trying to accomplish here? If we're trying to accomplish that everyone can see the, the baseball game, then absolutely people need different size boxes depending on their height in order to be able to see. So we need to know about people's experiences. We need to know about their skills and talents and not only that, you know, Michelle, I had a conversation with a colleague the other day and she was saying in her organization, she's a white female. In her organization, uh, they had a mandate that they had to promote more women and people of color. She was promoted to fill the box because her boss was going to get incentivized if he did this. But when she came to the table to have... Um, to present her ideas, she was talked over or someone else would pick up on her idea and um, say it and she wouldn't get acknowledged for saying that. So the idea is it's, it's about treating people um, equitably, not equally, but equitably. What, what does that person need to be successful? And not and, and really knowing why you're doing what you're doing. You're right. Favorite, favoritism doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't fit well in here. It's like how do we ensure that every person is successful? Absolutely. And for long story short, she might have been called the diversity hire or or the the affirmative action hire, things along that lines, which is why I named my company positive hire right? And to reframe the negative, 
right? You speak in positive affirmations. Everybody's like, we still have, we still, we, you have to change the language of, of what is being yes. spoken. And sometimes you do it literally. And so I did, I did it literally with naming of the company and people that are often treated as less than in an organization understand positive hire. And I get so much pushback from white men. Well, it sounds like this, like, cause it's not for you. Right. And so it's really understanding. And so the people that see positive hire see that I'm bringing equity, the things that works for them, that they may not be getting inside of an organization because they're looking at equality. They're looking at equality and not equity. And so how do we show up and how do we position ourselves is really, really important to what we provide to each of our employees. Um, and the same thing like access if you're handicapped in an organization, like, hey, I need a different type of desk or chair and, and things and the runaround this disabled people get in an organization like well that costs too much you're supposed to make reasonable accommodations and so that's that's really important to to do that as well so i want to get back into when as you're looking at the demographics or if you the data you look at to determine what how to create these training programs where are you getting it from or how do you come about uh grabbing or creating points or um, what I want to say forms or collection points for this type of data? You know, really, for me, one of the best ways to do this is through focus groups. You know, I love sitting and talking to people to find, because you know what? As human beings, we make a lot of assumptions about other people about what we think they need, you know? Um, and it's really extraordinary when you sit and talk to people and just ask them, what do you need? What would it take for you to be able to bring your full authentic self to work and for you, your assets to shine? What would that take? You know, I do a lot of retreats with companies um, some of them are team building retreats. Some of them, they're getting ready to launch a diversity initiative and they want to go away and really talk about it for a day or two and, and build on that. And one of the things I do whenever I do something like this is I interview every employee who's going to be part of the retreat. I'm not just showing up uh, and coming up with my, because I'm a really creative person. I can put the whole thing together by myself without even thinking about it. But I, I interview each person and say, what would it take for you to walk away and say, this was tremendously successful? And people always have ideas and thoughts. And so from that, I take it and build it. And some of the things that people come up with, I would have never thought of. So I love it. For me, the most important thing is human to human contact, um, asking people their thoughts and feelings. What do you need? It's amazing. It's very, it can be, depending on the size of the organization, it can be time consuming, but I have a team of people and, and we, so we can spread out. So it's, you know, it's not me, me just trying to interview 500 people, um, but that works. That to me is, you know, the biggest thing. Um, and, and we will look back at, have you done something like this before? Have you done a retreat before? Have you done a team building activity before? And um, if so, what worked, what didn't work? It's, 
it it is the thing that I think is is really pretty powerful. Do you find that you have to sometimes go and do multiple types of events because they they attract different people throughout in the organization? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we're I'm so glad I started in training and development because I learned so much about interacting with people who are like me and people who are different from me. And, you know, one of the things that we found this out, even on LinkedIn, uh, even on Zoom, when we're having all these Zoom meetings, whether it's Zoom or in person, there are some people who really want to come and observe. They just want to take the information in. They're not inclined to necessarily share right away. Um, and so understanding that people are different, have different needs. And when we can um, make room for people being different, then that's really, really powerful. So it's going into these things, understanding that some people are going to be really extroverted and want to go, are going to want to share a lot. And other people are going to want to hang back. But Michelle, let me tell you one thing that I find so um, fascinating. Oftentimes those people, and we know, we all know this, those people who are hanging back and not talking constantly are the ones who have, in some cases, the most profound things to share. And I'll, I, I always make room, even if it's towards the middle or the end of the session to say, there's some people we haven't heard from yet. Is there anyone who wants to contribute? And Michelle, the stuff they have to share, I'm like, wow, I'm so glad I asked that question because we would have missed that. That's a gem. What you just said is a gem. Thank you so much for sharing. I love it. So what if you found through your experience with learning and development that has worked as you even look at generations it, when it comes, are, you, are there certain things that work by different generations when it came to learning and development? And if so, can you share what those are? Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating. Um, when I was in training and development, it was really interesting. So I, I'm gonna digress for two seconds. <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people have heard the story of uh, Colonel Sanders, that he didn't start his fried chicken business until the day he received his first social security check. And he looked at that check and said, oh no, I can't make it off this. <laughs> this is not gonna work. So he literally, after he retired, started frying chicken and, and driving it around the restaurants and asking people if they would sell his chicken. And, and he did this over a hundred times before somebody actually said, yes, I will sell your chicken. I'll never forget for the longest time in the cable business, oh, and yes, I was in the cable business <laughs> for the longest time, what would happen is we would get people coming right out of high school, right out of college, and this was their very first job. And some of them didn't know, some of them had really good work ethics because of you know what they learned in school or from their families. Some really thought, well, my job is the place I come when I don't have other things to do. So that was really interesting. And then we started getting people who were like Colonel Sanders. They had retired, they'd gotten their first check, and they're like, no, I need a part-time job. And so they would come and work with us. 
And so we would interview these people when they came in, like what made you decide to come here and so on and so forth. And yes, th there were two things that really stood out. This is generally speaking, so I'm not putting anyone down. This is generally speaking. We found that the people who were older were really committed to coming to work every day, but they were not as quick with the technology. So it was a lot harder to train them in some cases because they just weren't used to working so much on a computer, so much with the technology. And many of them, we were training to be technical troubleshooters. And that was, yeah, that was, that was challenging. And so what, Michelle, what we used to tell them is if you get on the phone and you get stuck trying to talk to an older person, and again, I'm not putting anybody down because I'm older, <laughs> so I get it. But literally, we would say, do you have a four-year-old or five-year-old grandkid in the house? Tell, put them on the phone. And do you know that kid could troubleshoot? They could, they could do the computer stuff. And the younger people who came in, like I said, they would come to work, but not every day. But they were masters at the technology. And we used to laugh and say, if we could cut both of them in half and meld them together, we'd have the perfect employee. I love it. I love it. Yeah, the partnering with that and just working intergenerationally. I remember when I was in corporate, we had a gentleman who was in his like 80. He turned 80 and he was still working in construction, work, wearing steel tote boots. And his name was Floyd. And like, Floyd, what happened? He was like, look, I can still do the job. It's just going to take me a lot longer to get there. Get yeah, yeah. The and so he he was so bright and he he so bright articulate he could he had never been to college but he knew how to run construction crews he knew when they were about to screw up something and he would tell them you don't want to do that you want to think about it but he he learned how to number one use a computer and this is the trick he learned how to use a computer they got him to use a computer you can play salt why are you playing with real cards solitaire is on your computer he was like what and they showed him how to pull up solitaire on his computer. Like you can do your timesheet on your computer because you know how to play solitaire. It's, it's really easy It's because it's similar. And they showed him how to tie, they started tying different things in because they got him on the computer. Long story short, they gave him a new computer and it did not have solitaire. He learned, he knew how to call um, the help desk and they had to bring somebody on to install solitaire because um, that's right. He wasn't going to do it. And so long as he had something that kept him engaged on his computer, he would check his email at least once a day. He would do his timesheet once a day, and then he would do his reports, construction reports. But it literally started with something that he liked when it came to technology in order for him to consistently do it. But other than that, when they took that solitary off, and it took like two or three days for him to find somebody that was willing to put it on there. Like we got to, mm -hmm. we had to beg people like, look, he the best one we got and he 80. We need the solitaire on. We were remote. So nobody could come down. Like we literally had to do everything mm -hmm. over the phone because we were on the construction site. So it really does make a difference in how you train people. So it, it does feel as though they're included and you do it in a way that's really important. Because some things I learned from him and having to be out on site. I can't read a book, it's not in the video. It actually had to be there and him pointing out what the crews were doing correctly and what they were doing incorrectly to help me better manage what it looked like. So it really does take 
both perspectives of that. So, Christina, as we wrap up, what, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Uh, I'm going to drop in the chat my... Um... We got you. We got you. Oh, okay. Yep. LinkedIn. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's where I am. Yep. Absolutely. Any final thoughts for us before you, before you leave us today? Yeah. I just want to say really quickly, you know, um, diversity training has been around for 30 plus years. And for the longest time, it was not done right. That's not bashing anybody who did it previously. It's just a lot of people were under the impression that if we give people the information, they will change. Human beings are very complex. And one of the things I read in the Harvard Business Review that I have actually been employing and I am seeing a dramatic difference in organizations. For people who have traditionally been underrepresented may need, remember how the kids need different size boxes to be able to see over the fence? I'm working right now as a coach with a hospital and that hospital has decided they want to do the best they can to promote black folks to vice president level. These people are already directors, they're high performing. And what the Harvard Business Review said is in some cases, underrepresented people need a mentor, an executive sponsor and a coach. And that model is working beautifully. I actually have five people that I'm coaching. Two have already been promoted to vice president and they earned it. It's not just because they're a diversity person trying to be promoted. They have really earned it. So the data is out there of what works. And we have a lot, uh, you know, a lot more data and information around how to really help underrepresented folks feel like they're included, make sure that they really experience belonging and can do their best work. Thank you so much, Christina, for that. Everybody, be sure you go connect with Christina on LinkedIn. Thank you, Christina, for dropping those uh, gems. That is something we pull, pull and push here in Positive Hire and what some things that we're working on as well in our technology. So I absolutely agree because I've seen it work as well. So Christina, absolutely. have a great day and I look forward to talking to you at, um, what is it, the break room? Yeah, absolutely. Thursdays, 1230 to 1 Eastern time, the break room to have conversations about race. Join us. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon, Michelle. Okay, bye, Christina. So everybody in the chat, we are dropping a link for you to provide your feedback on the discussion with Christina. We want to know your thoughts as it comes to creating a learning and development program for underrepresented employees. What are your thoughts on, on what Christina had to say? I know we did some mindset stuff and maybe you're like, I don't think it'll work. And maybe now you're having that shift. Maybe I need to do some mindset work, but also what are the positives of doing that?